Welcome to In-Depth Studies Weekend. In-Depth Studies is the teaching ministry of Jeff Volker, which seeks to equip the believer with a theological foundation. All teaching is from the point of view of the doctrines of grace and New Covenant theology. Thank you for joining us again uh, for In-Depth Studies Weekend. Uh, I'm Paul Honeycutt, your host, joined by the director of In-Depth Studies, the one and only Jeff Volker. Jeff, last couple weeks we've been in Hebrews chapters 8 and 10, uh, kind of defining and looking at what is the new covenant and comparing and contrasting with the old. Today we're going to go into Jeremiah, actually go back to the Old Testament, and look at a section that is quoted in Hebrews and kind of see how that works out. So uh, Jeremiah 31, where are we going to pick it up? Well, we'll go back. We'll pick it up at, uh, right before um, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That's what's quoted in Hebrews 8 and 10. Well, we're going to start it, uh, in verse 26 of Jeremiah 31. And in doing so, let me first off give a context and explain where we're going today as to why we're doing this. This is probably beginning however long it takes us to get through this segment. Uh, this is probably the most controversial point uh, that we will go through. And that is, is that uh, it's everybody understands, that's not debatable, that the author of Hebrew uses Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 to describe that uh, the new covenant, the work of Jesus on the cross. That goes there. But when we go back to Jeremiah 31 itself, we need to ask the question, what would the original hearers actually hear? How would they understand this prophecy when it was first given to them? And this would be Israelites. And that's, once again, that's without debate. No, Nobody debates that. So, and of course, the context here in Jeremiah is not unlike the rest of the prophets, and that is, uh, we will call this, because someone else coined this term, I didn't, uh, the sort of like the storyline of the prophets, the storyline. The storyline is this, uh, and all the prophets come into the storyline at some point. That is, God chooses Israel, gives all these benefits to Israel. Israel is bad from the get-go, and finally God judges Israel. And we know historically that the northern kingdom was judged by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom, Judah, was judged by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. But then the prophets describe that after this judgment, there's going to come a time in the future when God is going to now do something positive with Israel. He's going to bring them back into the land, and he's going to give them new hearts. They're going to believe all of that. And so this, the latter part of the storyline, that they're going to be brought back into the land, virtually all the prophets address this. Different language, but the same, the same concept, the same idea. It's all prophetically described. And, of course, that's exactly what's being described in Jeremiah 31. But let's pick it up in verse uh, 27 of Jeremiah 31, in the midst of this God is judging Israel, okay? So he says this, and once again, I'm reading from the NIV. Uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord. So he's talking about the future. When I will plant the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the offspring of men and animals, just as I watched over them to uproot and tear down, 
and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster. So that's their judgment. That's already taken place. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Okay, now stop right right there. So this is the storyline. He's judged Israel, but now sometime in the future, he's going to bring them back into the land, plant them, and, and give them, pour out his spirit on them. And that's what he's going to do. So now he's going to, beginning at verse 29, he's referring to the future, that period of time, and he says this, In those days, time yet future, people will no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. That is a a Hebrew proverb. Uh, And verse 30 says, Instead, everyone will die for his own sin, Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. What does that mean? The bottom line is is that it means that there's going to come a time in the future where everyone will be punished for their own sin. Well, the backdrop of that is that in Israel, what we see is that, uh, you know, the phrase that's commonly used is that the sins go down to the third and fourth generation. God punishes people for the father's sins down to the third and fourth generation. And in effect, he says, a time is coming in the future when that will not apply. Everyone will, in effect, suffer for their own sins. In the Old Covenant with Israel, God is dealing corporately. And the idea is, and of course we see this with Israel, even if you were one of those remnant of believers within Israel, Everybody, most everybody else is an unbeliever. If God's going to bring judgment on Israel as a nation, you're going to experience it. Of course, the 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 actual uh, book of the Old Testament that illustrates that is the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk being a prophet, a good guy, but he's what he's doing. It's a very short little book, and what he does is he's he's first he's uh, distressed over the uh, unfaithfulness of Israel, and he's, and he's calling out on God in prayer, how, how can you look on this and not do anything? Then God responds to him and says, I, I am going to do something. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to bring judgment on them. And then Habakkuk says, whoa, we are bad but as a nation, but Babylonians are far worse. How can you justify judging us with the Babylonians? And God's point is that then he responds to Habakkuk and he says, don't worry, when I'm done using the Babylonians to judge Israel, I'm going to destroy the Babylonians. And then at that point, Habakkuk just has to wait for this to happen, and he is going to experience this judgment along with everybody else, even though he's one of the good guys, because he's just part of this corporate handling of the people of God in picture form Israel. Okay, And you see this even then with families within Israel. Remember in the book of Joshua, right at the beginning, when they, they took Jericho, the walls came a-tumbling down, and they were told not to take anything. And Achan, uh, Achan took some stuff. So then they went to the next city, Ai, and they were unable to defeat Ai, and they were defeated by the folks, and then they, they're wringing their hands. They call out on the Lord, and the Lord says it's because there's sin in the camp. They cast lots, and it's, it's determined, Achan, you're the guy. Well, Achan took the stuff, but who did they kill? They killed all of Achan's family, you know, his dog, his cat, his gerbil. They killed everybody. Well, because it was a corporate thing. 
they are blamed for his sin. And sometimes today, if we don't know how to understand the old in relation to the new, well-intentioned believers go back, they see this in the old covenant era, how God was dealing sort of with a group, and they think that that still applies today, and it doesn't. This isn't referring in any sense to original sin. No, no, not not at all. This is referring to simply, since Israel functions as a picture, God is God can deal with this stuff in sort of in picture form. Um, but example, here in Phoenix, when I first came to Phoenix, there is a, a particular channel on the television that had a byline. When they would do a station identification, they would say this phrase, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Now, the context of which that television station uh, used this phrase was not because they thought, uh, you know, that we were, um, or or we should say that they weren't particularly religious, no. But that is a phrase that believers have applied to America, Mm -hmm. that we are a Christian nation, that we are sort of like a bit of a new Israel. We're, we're a special people as a nation in God's sight, and that's not true at all. We're an unbelieving people. We've had Christian influence. We understand that, but we've always been unbelieving from the get-go. But, the, so, but that phrase from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, applies to Israel and Israel alone. They are the only nation God has ever—physical nation God has ever had. So you can't really—and, of course, that, I, I should say, I guess, fi- finish my thought— uh, there is, in this side of Pentecost, in the New Covenant era, God doesn't deal corporately. Mm. And that's what he's getting at in Jeremiah 31.30. He doesn't deal corporately. So, so we're not really into national repentance at the Day of Prayer for America, for the sins of America. I'm not asking for forgiveness because if I had a great-great-great-grandfather who owned slaves, that's a, you know, that, you know, his sin is one thing, but if I didn't do it, I didn't do it. You know, it's like asking for forgiveness for something you didn't do. You know, this is this is digressing, but why not? Uh, you know how how the common practice is when someone says to somebody, could be they want to reduce the tension, in, in, you know, and they say, okay, if if I've sinned against you, please forgive me. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, it means is that they don't believe they've sinned, but you think they've sinned. They want to get you off their back. And so this is sort of a half-baked approach that uh, they're not really repenting, but it sort of satisfies the requirement and everybody's fine. And we have to tell, remind folks, you can't ask for forgiveness for something you're not convinced you've done. If you've done it, you need to ask for forgiveness. But if you haven't asked for forgiveness, I mean, if you, haven't, if you don't believe you've done it and you ask for forgiveness, you need to then ask for forgiveness for lying. <laughs> and this is the idea. So... The, in the Old Covenant, uh, folks were punished for the sins of their father. Punished. Now, once again, the way we typically read that today in evangelical circles is we would say, if my example, if my father was an alcoholic, he wasn't, but if he was an alcoholic, there are results of his sin of, drunk, of drunkenness that affect me. Then we would say, well, that's true. Maybe he didn't provide for the family, and so I grew up in a, in a difficult living situation. Okay, we understand that. That's not what this is, these verses referring to. They're talking about 
you're actually blamed for the sin of your father. Yeah, this isn't talking about consequences. No. This is talking about guilt. Yes, that is a huge difference. In Israel, that is what happened because these weren't believers anyways. But now, Jeremiah is saying, he says that there's going to come a time in the future when God regathers you back into the land and makes you a new people when the he's no longer going to blame you for someone else's sin. Every person will suffer for their own sin. And of course, that period of time, he then immediately, the next verse is Jeremiah 31, 31, which is the new covenant. The prophecy regarding that, which is quoted in Hebrews 8 and 10. They're referring to the new covenant, the fulfillment of the new covenant, and that's now what we want to talk about. So, what is the nature of this? That is, from the point of view of the actual audience in Jeremiah, what would they think was being promised? And we have to be honest. We put, we put ourselves in their shoes and we say, well, they would be expecting literal Israel to be brought back into the land of Palestine, given lots of benefits, blessings, you know, and it's gonna, God is going to, and it's going to last for a long time. That's what they'd be expecting. And we have, but the problem is, is that this prophecy is quoted in the New, in Hebrews 8 and 10, not referring to that. It's referring to the death of Jesus on the cross, which purchases a people, most of whom are Gentiles, and there's no literal land promise no longer attached to that. You do get a land, but it's spiritual, you know, heavens, the heaven, then the new heavens, new earth, but it's not literal Palestine. You don't get that. So this seems to cause a bit of a, a disconnect because the argument is, and this is particularly the argument of dispensationalism, well-meant believers, they would say, and we think of John MacArthur on this mm-hmm. point because he articulates this quite well, is that a promise given to, a prophecy given to ethnic Israel must of necessity have a literal fulfillment to that people. That must be what it is all about. And, and we would say, well, that, you know, theoretically that makes sense. The problem is that's not how Scripture handles it. And, and before we go, to any fur, go any further in Jeremiah 31, let's just go to another place that's probably simpler that illustrates this point. Let's talk about the, the uh, promise, the prophecy regarding Elijah to come back. So turn to the end of the uh, book of Malachi. Sort of at this point, we just sort of interject some little pithy facts. Book of Malachi is the last book in our English Bible. The Hebrew Old Testament is not the last book. They're rearranged differently, but in English Bible, it is the last book. Also, some uh, of a Southern European heritage like to think this is actually the first Italian prophet, <laughs> Malachi, but we don't think so. But if you go to the very end of Malachi... Uh, it's going to say this. It, you pick it up, and it's the very last two verses of Malachi chapter 4, talking about a future day, a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It says this, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and, dead, and great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. 
Okay, and the idea is that at the end of time, Elijah is going to come back. And of course, the way people see this is that the second coming, Elijah is coming back. Okay, now the problem is, is that when you read this, it seems terribly simple. They're expecting literal Elijah to come back. But turn to Matthew chapter 17. This is that account of the transfiguration. But in the midst of that, uh, go down to verse 10. The disciples are having this discussion with Jesus, and they say in verse 10, the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Okay. And of course, this is before the end. Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things, because that's what it says in Malachi. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So, according to Jesus' own words, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6 of Elijah to come. Well, now we, we begin to see how you know, the old relates to the new with regard to this prophecy about Elijah coming back. That from the point of view of Malachi, it looks like literal Malachi coming back to physical land Israel and going to restore things. Jesus, in Matthew 17, says, no, actually, it's, it's describing the coming of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is said to restore all things, that is, he taught about repentance, and he prepared the way in Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus. the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, absolutely. Right. And so, but you only understand how to tr- what the fulfillment of Malachi is all about when you get into the Gospels. I don't know the answer to this, and maybe you do or don't, I don't know, but in terms of John MacArthur, would yes. he be awaiting the, the physical return of, of the prophet Elijah? Absolutely. So he's still looking for that. So he right. doesn't see this, no. even though Jesus himself says it's already happened. Right. He would not see that. No, he doesn't. And, and once again, we're not throwing stones at John, because he's no. a wonderful guy. But, the, uh, but we do think in this point his uh, theological first principles— his mm. theological commitment as far as the idea in dispensational circles that a promise given to Israel in the Old Testament must of necessity have a literal fulfillment, and that must be its real fulfillment. And we would say, once again, that sounds good, but that's not how the Bible does it. It's not how God does it. That's the problem. And so we would say that, okay, then if Israel— is only a temporary, unbelieving picture of the people of God, as we've repeatedly said we see in Scripture, then that's all they needed to know. But now in Matthew 17, we're now preparing for the New Covenant era, then we need to know the rest of the story. And so they give us the rest of the story, that actually the real fulfillment is John the Baptist. And it's not you know, he's restoring. In what way does he restore all things? Not literally, physically, but he's spiritually preparing the hearts of Israelites for the message of Jesus about how to get into the real kingdom, which is real salvation, of which they do not have. So this is, it's terribly important, you know, to kind of get a handle on that. 
And that is, is that we ultimately, uh, when we talk about prophecy, we ultimately will not know absolutely for sure how it's being fulfilled until we, till the new explains it to us. Because sometimes it could be fulfilled quite literally, other times, like this one, John the Baptist of Malachi 4, not literal at all. And so that should cause us to pause, should cause us to pause a bit. Yeah, and I brought it up last week, and I'll re, you know, using the term fulfillment, because we look at what Jesus said about the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Well, not literally, not, not in all senses. I mean, that's where you do have to stop and step back and kind of look at the bigger picture and really understand, because, boy, if you don't, this all, I mean, I've read books on, on uh, um, you know, taking the dispensational view of end times and the literal fulfillment of some of that stuff, we're talking animal sacrifices. We're talking the rebuilt temple. We're talking a, a bloody mess. Absolutely true. And so this um, interpreting the old through the lens of the new, right. this is a huge issue. And all we're saying is we're not really imposing this idea on Scripture. We're just observing how does how does God interpret his own word? And so here, through the lips of Jesus himself, God who became man, he tells us John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the promise of Elijah to come. And we admit we would not have known that if we had just read Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. We wouldn't have known it. Right. We, so and we wouldn't have understood the day of the Lord in Malachi referred to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus in and, the manner in which he did. Yes, and all ultimately pointing to the second coming as a whole complex of events. Right. Now, the reason we get into this is because this is great relevance to Jeremiah 31, mm. 31 to 34, because we're going to see the same thing take place. Because the, the, pro, the promise in Jeremiah 31 is that sometime in the future, God is going to bring Israel back into the land, only he's going to make a new covenant, which will produce a new people. But God did bring the people back into the land. Yeah, that's the problem. The problem is, yeah, under Ezra and Nehemiah, a small group of Jews came back from Babylon, and but they were, but it was no, not remotely. There was no new covenant, no nothing. It was in effect maybe a small picture. Excuse me, a, a picture of what was to come. Is that what we mean when we talk about already, not yet? Is that that same kind of idea that in one sense it was fulfilled, and yet in another sense it's yet to be fulfilled? Yes, I suppose in in a real sense. But as far as the actual fulfillment, hmm. and because here we have the clear statement in Book of Hebrews that the death of Christ on the cross is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31, what he accomplished, which is the church— mostly Gentiles, little bit of Jews, and it has nothing to do with the literal land of Palestine. And that, of course, is we struggle with typically because the opening verses say of Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And once again, you're saying, how explicit can this be? Right. I mean, this is straightforward. The problem is, is that when we use this phrase on our last show, Jeremiah, I mean, Hebrews 8 is quoting Jeremiah as talking about the new covenant in the language of the picture, in old covenant language. 
old covenant language for the people of God is Israel. House of Israel, house of Judah. But the fulfillment is the real church, real believers. So when they're talking in terms of the real people of God, in old covenant language, they describe them as the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But fulfillment, it doesn't really mean that. That's what that was. Israel was a picture of the real people of God. So the prophecy is about Jesus producing a real people of God, but it's described prophetically as producing a new house of Israel, house of Judah. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, yeah, but then of course, I'm going to go ahead, but you know, we're in verse 33 where it says, he only refers to the house of Israel. He doesn't talk about Judah. Oh, because the, the, the idea, it's used as a part for the whole, okay. that you have Israel as the people of God. When Solomon died and Rehoboam took place, the Israel was fractured, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and they tend to could describe, Israel describes the whole or the part, makes no difference. That is the people of God, at least in Old Covenant language of the picture. So we're going to pursue this some more next week? Yeah, we do need to just continue to walk through this Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, because it's crucial that we get a handle on how does God interpret his own word. And so this is a, this is a wonderful illustration. We're going to spend some time on this because this is so crucial to give us just the tool to really handle Scripture as a whole. I think it's great. I know there's a book by Beale that was out a couple of years ago talking about handling Old, old, old Testament stuff and New Testament and all that. It is a fascinating issue, and we do need to get a handle on it. So it'll be good. Looking forward to it. more information or would like to support our ministry, you can find us on the web at ids.org or call us at 480-924-4290 or email jeff at jeff.volker at ids.org. 